Welcome back to Early Departures. Welcome back, everybody. We're still here. <laughs> Episode 16. Episode 16. I'm not even going to get all like, excited about it because I'm just going to get excited when we hit 20. It feels premature <laughs> to get excited about 16. But hey, we've made it here. Hey, we're doing it. Um, we've made 16 more episodes than most people. <laughs> I think we made 15 more episodes than I thought we would. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, so not a whole lot going on in my life. I am working on a new puzzle, just an <laughs> update about my puzzle game. I'm doing a puzzle of the Dolomites, which was from my story last week with the cable car. So that lines up well. Speaking of cable cars, I looked up the photos from the story you told. Yeah. And that sent me down a rabbit hole of cable cars. Yeah. And I've got some things in the works. Ooh. <laughs> okay. Because that's the most I ever want to do research about cable cars. <laughs> oh, no. So. I, went down a, I went down a big rabbit hole and it requires some more reading. So I'm not ready to tell you about it yet. Okay. I'll look forward to that. That's fun. Yep. Um. So... Let me take you away from there. Please do. <laughs> and, Please. Uh, yeah, I'm going to tell you about, and you may have heard of, of this story. I don't know. I hadn't, but when I looked into it, I was like, oh, my God, this story is nuts. And then it was like there were episodes of all kinds of, like, you know, true crime TV shows that were about it and all this stuff. And I was like, wow, am I the only person who's not heard of this story? So you might have heard about it, but I'm going to tell you about it anyway. Heather Matt grew up the only child in a wealthy family. The child of celebrated jazz composer James L. Mack and a socialite named Sheila Von Wies Mack. Her father passed away when she was 10, and she alleges that her mother then became an abusive alcoholic. This this definitely rings a bell, but it's probably not what I'm thinking about. Mm. I'm thinking of Mommy Dearest. Which <laughs> has nothing to do with anyone no traveling. No wire hangers! Yeah. An abusive single mom. Ugh. Yeah, she says that as a teenager, her mom would scratch her and burn her with cigarettes and try to fight her physically because she would try to take her keys away so she couldn't drive intoxicated to go to the store to buy more booze. Um, but she said she was also like a drug addict as well. And Heather said, quote, I rarely got to bed before five or six in the morning and I'd wake up when she woke up at about 1 p.m., at school, they thought I was a spoiled rich kid who was partying till dawn, but they had no idea I was being chased around the house all night by my mother with a kitchen knife. That's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, it's horrible. If true. <laughs> so, her sister Debbie says that Heather is basically full of shit and that it was the other way around. Quote, she bit Sheila. She would hit her. Heather pushed her one time and in the bathroom and she fell down and broke her arm. A family friend also said that the police were called to the Mac residence 86 times and that there was no evidence that the mother was an alcoholic or violent in any way in any of the reports that came from those visits. According to reports, 62-year-old Sheila took 19-year-old Heather on a vacation to Bali to try to fix their relationship. They checked into the luxurious St. Regis Resort, where rooms apparently go for anywhere from $2,000 a night. So very swanky. Yeah. On August 11th, 2014, Heather left the hotel, and by 3 a.m. she still hadn't returned. Sheila went to the lobby and asked the duty manager if they'd seen Heather. Yes, they told her. 
Heather was in the other room on her reservation. What other room? Sheila asked in confusion. Madam, you are paying for two rooms. She is there in Mr. Schaefer's room, the duty manager told her. After they had been staying at the resort for more than a week, Heather's boyfriend, 21-year-old Tommy Schaefer, had shown up, which apparently came as a surprise to Sheila. And probably a surprise that she was paying for it. Um, yes, definitely. (laughs) CCTV footage shows Sheila and Heather arguing that day in the lobby of the hotel. Sheila asked, quote, So Tommy Schaefer the thief is here. When we get home, I'm going to sue that man for fraud. And who paid for his air ticket to come here? On my credit card as well? Sheila and Heather returned to Sheila's room, and at 8.30 the next morning, Tommy came to the room. So the story was that Sheila became enraged after learning that Heather was pregnant. Tommy alleges that the fight was already going on when he came into the room. Quote, I was just standing there listening to all the yelling and name-calling, and it all became too much for me. In the heat of the moment, Tommy hit Sheila in the face with a metal handle from a fruit bowl. What? When Sheila, <laughs> when Sheila fell to the ground, Tommy continued the assault as Heather allegedly left the room and stayed in the bathroom until Tommy called out to her that Sheila was dead. I feel like that escalated really quickly. Yeah. And a really sad thing about this is that they had been there for like a week or so, maybe a couple days over a week before Tommy showed up. And you would think that she would just be like that Heather would just be kind of like trying to do her own thing or being like mad at her mom or whatever. But they have pictures from the trip before Tommy showed up. And they're all like smiling together and looks like normal family vacation pictures. So something, you know. It was like a a cover on Heather's behalf anyway. Yeah. You don't think she was like plot? Do you think it was like a a plot or just? Well, we'll get to that. (laughs) Okay. But first, I will tell you probably the very worst thing about this whole entire story is that the autopsy showed that rather than dying from the bludgeoning, Sheila had choked to death on her own blood which had entered into her lungs. Oh, that's awful. It's awful. And I don't even want to say it, but they said that her face was so, like, bashed in that basically if they had had to identify her by what she looked like, they wouldn't have been able to. So to know that she was in that state of being bludgeoned and didn't even die from that is awful. That means everything in her head was just, like, gushing blood yeah and like that's not just like a one hit like i'm mad at you you've upset me yeah that's like blind rage yeah and just to give you an idea because until i saw it i didn't understand what they meant by like the metal handle of a fruit bowl and it's not like anything i've ever really seen it was kind of like a long metal object so i was i imagine like a ladle like a metal like ladle to scoop the fruit yeah, yeah, it was kind of kind of like that, because um, I was originally thinking, you know, like a little, like, handle on a bowl. <laughs> it's not that tiny at all. I didn't even realize at first that it wasn't still connected to the bowl, but it was not. It was just the handle, uh, which is kind of important later. So afterward, the pair wrapped Sheila in a sheet and put her in a suitcase, because apparently that's what everybody does in the stories we tell now, <laughs> just throw them in a suitcase. Uh, which, you know, the moral of the story is just always be too big to fit into any suitcase. Just always bring a carry-on. That's it. <laughs> Make it a duffel bag, too. 
Yeah. No hard edges. <laughs> and this is terrible also. They actually had to break some of her bones to fit her into the suitcase. I think that happens more than, like, I'd care to admit or know of, like, getting people in Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I guess if it's, like, if you're looking around, like, what am I going to do with this body? And you've got a big old suitcase, that's, like, the thing that comes to mind. But, like... Seems like people putting bodies in suitcases happens way more than I would ever expect it. I think it does. I think it does. Because I think it also, I feel like I've watched a bunch of Dateline episodes where like, yeah, it's always how they get the person out of the hotel or the apartment. Yep. So they went outside to get a taxi to the airport, but the taxi driver became suspicious when they wouldn't let him help them put the suitcase in the trunk. And he apparently thought that they were hiding drugs and asked them to open the suitcase. At that point, Heather and Tommy basically dropped the suitcase in the trunk and told the driver that they were just going to go check out of the hotel. And they ran away instead. Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Could you imagine? Yeah. So it was a crazy sort of span of events because they actually had tried to check out of the hotel, but they were unable because... The whole thing was on Sheila's credit card. So, of course, when you're checking out of a hotel, you know, they want you to sign for all that stuff. You know, like maybe you had spa treatments or you ordered room service or whatever. They want the credit card holder to sign for those charges. And, of course, she wasn't there. (laughs) And I don't know what they might have told the manager (laughs) when it was like, oh, she's not here right now. Yeah. Additionally, when she found out about the scam with Tommy staying in the other room under her credit card, Sheila took the card off of that room and told the hotel to charge Tommy instead. And of course, Tommy didn't have that kind of money, so they wouldn't let him check out either. They were like, pay us or you can stay here. I wonder if he put down a card for like incidentals when he got there. I just can't imagine you'd let someone swap a hey, don't charge my card for this room and not be like, okay, well, I need a card on file. Especially at $2,000 a night. Yeah. Oh, the plan was there. But maybe when it's a $2,000 a night hotel, they just assume everybody's there is fancy (laughs) and can be trusted, you know? Yeah. And they have a backup card. I guess they have hers. Like, if something goes wrong, we still have hers. Yeah. On top of All of that, Heather's passport was actually still in the safe in the room that she'd shared with Sheila. And apparently Sheila was the only person who would be given access to the safe because she didn't, you know, Heather didn't know the code. And when she asked the front desk, they were like, sorry, we can only give the code to Sheila. So they were stuck and down one passport. I don't know what they thought they were going to do, but uh, they were definitely not going to be able to get out of Bali with no passport. Yeah. The driver alerted hotel security guards after the couple didn't return, and they saw blood spots on the suitcase and told the driver to just go directly to the police station with his car. The police opened the suitcase and, of course, discovered the body. (laughs) Oh, my God. The poor driver. Although he's lucky that they kind of just, like, ran, because how terrifying for him. Oh. Well, and not only that, but... Good thing the hotel security guards were like, yeah, just you just go to the... Go to the police station. Don't touch it. <laughs> Don't open it. Like, Yeah, just go uh-uh. straight there. Yeah, because then at least, like, hopefully, hopefully the poor taxi driver was, like, nowhere near when they actually opened it. Because nobody should have to see that who's not involved, you know. That'll, that's some shit you can't unsee. No, that's some stuff you need serious therapy for. They were arrested the next morning at a nearby budget motel. 
which apparently was less than a mile away from the St. Regis. And they claimed that kidnappers had uh, taken them all hostage, and but only killed Sheila. And then put them in the budget motel. Yeah, well, and that the Heather and, and Tommy had, like, managed to escape. Okay. Again, you don't call the cops. Don't people know that, like, you gotta call the cops to make it somewhat believable? Yeah. During the trial that ensued... It turned out that the allegations about Sheila freaking out after finding out about Heather's pregnancy were false. Emails presented to the court showed Sheila knew about the pregnancy before flying to Bali, so that's a red flag. And Heather later said that the truth is that Sheila had convinced her to have an abortion in Chicago, but when Sheila brought it up again in Bali, Heather had changed her mind, and that's when the argument started. So I feel like, you know, any time... Anyone just, like, changes their story multiple times. I just don't believe you already. Mm-hmm. She said Tommy and Sheila had each had a bottle of champagne and that Sheila was throwing the N-word around and telling Tommy that he wasn't good enough for Heather and that because Tommy and Heather were both black, whereas Sheila's white, the baby would be too dark and Tommy just snapped. However... Accusations about racism don't change the fact that the CCTV in the hotel actually shows that Tommy brought the murder weapon from his room tucked into his shirt. So if he had brought the fruit bowl from his room, like, okay, but no, he just brought the handle. Like, that's, you were going in there with a purpose before any kind of. Yeah, you had a plan. Yeah, no argument, whatever. And never mind that she says they were, they'd both drank a bottle of champagne. Uh, one bottle of champagne is not so much that you'd be like so out of control that you beat someone to death, but also it was 8.30 in the morning, so. Yeah, no brunch I've ever had has gotten that out of control. (laughs) It's certainly not before 8.30 in the morning. Like, it turns out that there was actually a string of text messages leading up to the murder with Heather and Tommy discussing what to do and how to do it. Oh, what dummies. Yeah. He was literally like, okay, I'm coming over. And she was like, are you sure that handle is hard enough to knock her out? And he was like, yeah, don't worry about it. (laughs) So You just have to be thankful that people are so stupid to get themselves caught because they're terrible people. But like, just... How dumb. Yeah. Let's talk about this over traceable text messages. like, And not just to text when you're planning, but to be texting back and forth, like, furiously, all leading right up until the murder. <laughs> so it's not even like a, oh, we found this text from you from six months ago. It's like, we can literally, it's like you live tweeted the murder, basically. How old were they again? Like, 20s? 19 and 21. Dummies. Yep. So Heather and Tommy were both convicted of the murder of Sheila, and Tommy got 18 years for committing the actual murder, and Heather got 10 years for assisting him. And I assume they went, they were convicted in Bali? Yeah. Yeah, so going to Balinese prison. That sounds probably awful. Well. I feel like that's where, like, what's that Claire Danes movie? Oh, yeah. Broke Down Palace? <laughs> uh, broke Down Palace. Oh, the cockroach is in the ear. <laughs> Uh, I would never, ever, ever in my life have tried to smuggle drugs in another country for that movie alone. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, it's a good life lesson. Claire Danes. Yeah. That, that movie was a really great PSA to all young people. 
yeah. Anyway, we'll get into the, what the situation is like in Balinese jail, anyway, in a little bit. But back home in the States, the FBI was analyzing the text messages found on Heather and Tommy's phones, because of course they were going to do that. And from that, they discovered that a third person had been involved. And it turns out Tommy's cousin, a man named Robert Bibbs, had coached the couple on how to kill Sheila and get away with it, which (laughs) clearly didn't do a very good job. Yeah, probably the worst uncle to get advice from. (laughs) Yeah. So, and that was all before either Heather or Tommy had ever left for Bali. So this was way, way planned in advance. In return for helping them with the coaching, he was promised a share of the anticipated multi-million dollar estate that Heather would have inherited had things gone to plan. Uh, Robert took a plea bargain and is serving nine years for his involvement. Basically, the discovery of his involvement proved without a doubt that it was premeditated murder and not a heat of the moment thing. So basically, you can throw out Everything Heather said about everything, the whole argument, the racism, everything was likely all just totally made up. Yeah, it's kind of hard to cover up that you've been plotting your mother's murder for like weeks. Yeah, especially when you involve a third person. And that third person, people were all just totally dumb. That cousin, he was texting his girlfriend and saying, oh, yeah, my cousin asked me to like help them kill this lady and, oh, we're going to be rich and all this. And I'm like, did these people not know how texts work? I swear, no one knows how the internet works. <laughs> it's crazy. Uh, so, if you recall, Heather was pregnant during the murder. So, what happened to the baby? Well, in Indonesia, babies can stay in jail with their mothers until the age of two. So, having given birth during the trial, the baby, which was named Stella did remain with Heather until her second birthday, at which time Oshar Suwartama, an Australian woman who's married to a Balinese man and living in Bali, took custody of Stella. She had befriended Heather when she was first arrested and served as an interpreter and supporter during the trial. Stella will be returned to Heather after she's released. So, I don't know anything about that lady, but... I mean, when you have no choice, it's whatever, but to, like, just give your kid to somebody that you've known for two years, essentially. But, yeah, but, like, what else does she do? Yeah. Well, Tommy's parents back in the States have actually petitioned to get custody of the daughter, but they were denied. So, I mean, that that must be horrible for them. Like, some random person is raising their grandkid, you know? Yeah. And the baby is in jail <laughs> with with the mom, like, it's just, it's all crazy. And, you know, Heather was going to have 10 years. So that's eight years that the daughter would be living with this random Australian woman. And, you know, she'd still be seeing Heather, but I would assume the whole family back in America, like, that kid would have no idea about them. I yeah, bet. or that they exist or anything. Um, I can see now why this has been on, like, murder mystery shows it does definitely have the drama made for television true crime yeah uh so about the jail itself heather says quote this is probably the best prison in the world what (laughs) she was in juvenile detention at 16 after getting into a fight with her mom 
and says that her experience in the Indonesian jail is less violent and more rehabilitative. And in fact, she said, quote, I would not be the kind of mother I am today, and Stella would not be such a happy child if it wasn't for the Indonesians. They've taught me so much about patience and nurturing and how to be a good mother. Yes, I'm locked up, but I'm happy. My life is better now than it ever was before. I'm far happier than I was living with my mother in Chicago. So she just had no remorse. She's just living her best life. <laughs> She's like, no, my life is my life is great now. Mom's dead. I'm in jail. So I don't have custody of my child. The best jail ever. <laughs> like anytime somebody says this is probably the best jail, like uh, I think no jail is the best jail. Uh, she said if she gets deported, and this just shows you, I think, like how she's very young and just immature and not, you know, doesn't really understand about the world yet. She said if she gets deported back to the U.S. after her sentence is finished, she wants to return to Bali as quickly as possible. Heather said, quote, I feel like I'm more Indonesian than American now. <laughs> My daughter is more Indonesian than American. She has a good life here. The people are nicer, and it's better and safer than back home. Back there, I was getting in with a bad crowd. It's violent. There are drugs and guns. To be honest, I'm glad I'm not there. It's actually better and safer here in prison. What? So. <laughs> Does she not how understand how being deported works? Yeah, how being deported works, and how also, like, in most countries, and I, you know, I'll be honest, I don't know what the laws are in Bali, but in most countries, you don't just get to show up and be like, I live here now. <laughs> I'm a model citizen. I killed my mother on your soil. I'm great now. Please let me stay. Yeah, yeah. And I have no job and I have no money, but I would like to make Bali my home. Thanks. Like, yeah, we'd all love to live in Bali. Like, Gosh, that is wild. And the thing is also that it remains to be seen that if she does get deported back to America, she might actually end up having to serve time in America. <laughs> so, like, she didn't even know if that's going to happen or not yet. Plot twist for her. What year did this happen? Uh, 2014. So she said, quote, You know, people say I killed my mother for her money. That's untrue. The only thing my mother ever did for me was give me money. If I wanted her money, I didn't need to kill her. In a 2016 letter, Tommy described Heather as, quote, that evil girl who manipulates everything. Heather is a black hole. While Heather had basically been living her best life in jail, posting pictures of drinking beer, smoking, and just generally partying in jail, he has gone the super religious route and spends his time baptizing other prisoners and repenting for his bad choices. And he expresses disbelief over how Heather is having such a good time in jail and worries because he'll be in jail for eight more years than Heather, meaning Stella will be with Heather and he's afraid of how she'll be raised. Yeah, that's pretty valid. Also, they drink beer in jail there? No wonder she thinks it's best jail ever because there's no beer drinking in the U.S. in jail. Yes. So she is like posting pictures on her Instagram from jail Drinking and partying. Oh, I cannot wait to look up her Instagram. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's, I mean, there's so much. There's, like, YouTube videos of her, like, dancing and all kinds of she stuff. She's, like, an influencer now? Yeah. It's, it should, okay, there was one uh, Instagram picture of her and this other girl. And the quote was, like, all in bold letters were celebrities. What? You're not even famous, but... It, 
if your name is known, it's for bad reasons. I'm like, baffled. I'm like literally baffled. Uh, so it's like a money thing that like if you have money, apparently you can pay at this jail to like, I don't know if they're paying to, for guards to look the other way or if they're paying to just, you know, maybe you're allowed to have beer. You just have to pay for it to be brought in. Like, I don't know what the deal is, but apparently if you have money, you can have some fun in an Indonesian jail. But where is she getting money from? I think there was a whole thing of like her she getting still had access to a donations. Oh. No, no. Are they going to say she still had access to the trust? Someone's donating money to her? I think that she had like in the beginning, um, you know, before everybody knew the whole story, I think that people were donating to her. And so maybe she has money left from that. But no wonder she's like, I'm having such a great time in jail. Like, yeah, you are. <laughs> Sheila left behind a $2.2 million estate, which Heather, while in jail for murdering her, did try to gain access to. Unsurprisingly, a judge, a U.S. judge, ruled that Heather would not receive any property, benefit, or other interest from Sheila's estate. Heather and Tommy's daughter, Stella, was named as the beneficiary instead. And the sad thing is that because there were several court battles over the money involving lots of attorneys and experts... Only about half of the money was left in the estate by the end of the battle. And if none of this had happened and Sheila was still alive, Heather would have received $1.6 million in the form of a trust on her 30th birthday. So I guess 30 seems like a really long time away when you're only 19. And she didn't want to wait for that. (laughs) Which I think you and I both can firmly say that 30 comes so much faster than you think it's going to. Yeah. And you'd be so much smarter about what you do with that money at 30 anyways. Yeah. She was 19 and still living with her mom who she claimed abused her. She was claiming, you know, that she fell in with a bad crowd in Chicago and there were guns and drugs and whatever. And it's like, all of this is on you. You're you're above 18. You can move out. You can get a job. You don't have to hang out with those people. Like, Yeah, you make your own choices. Yeah. But, you know, she made all her choices and she ended up <laughs> a celebrity <laughs> in an Indonesian prison. So I, like, really can't wait to look it up. Yeah. It's pretty incredibly awful. I mean, why does she have a phone in there? Yeah. I mean, I guess prisoners in the U.S. have phones sometimes, too, but... Um, I don't think they're supposed to, though. <laughs> no, I don't think they're supposed to. It, like, amazes me that, like, some of them have Facebook pages. Yeah. I mean, and she, I feel like they clearly know about her phone because she's all over international news. Um, And so, that's the thing, too, is, like, as of right now, she might actually get out early on good behavior, like, within the next 18 months. And I saw that story, like, came out not too long ago. So, probably sometime within the next 12 to 18 months, she thinks she might get out early. You need to set a calendar reminder from a year from now to Google her name. So, if for some, if we're still doing this, <laughs> yeah, you can let us know. But even if we're not doing this, still tell me. Good idea. And if I forget to do that, hopefully in the future, somebody will just be starting to listen to this podcast and they'll get to episode 16 and be like, <laughs> let me go Google that name. And then they will email us and tell us and then I won't have to remember. <laughs> Fingers crossed. And that's all uh, That's all about Heather, Tommy, and Sheila. That is wild. That's I didn't expect that to go where it went. Okay. So I'm going to tell you a story. That takes place in Colorado. Okay. Also has to deal with 
people being dumb using their phones. Perfect. Those are my favorite kind of people. (laughs) So, in late August 2017, 63-year-old John Cumbie Jr. of Illinois set out for a solo hiking and camping trip into the Rocky Mountains. Hmm. On September 10th, in Ada County, Idaho, near Boise, John's blue Plymouth van was spotted driving erratically. Deputy Tim Cooper pulled over the vehicle after the driver cut off a semi-truck on I-84. When the driver of the vehicle was questioned by the deputy for his identification, things quickly escalated. The driver presented no driver's license or any identification at all. Inside the van, the sheriff deputy found John's wallet, credit card, social security card, passport, along with all of his camping equipment. Mm. But the driver didn't match the identification that the sheriff found. Oh, no. Alongside the road, the deputy was able to identify the driver as Jeffrey Maynard, a Texas resident who had two active warrants from Texas. Uh-oh. One for arson and one for theft. Mm, I don't like that that's going at all. Yeah. Jeffrey also couldn't explain why he was driving a van filled with someone else's stuff. Mm. So, Deputy Cooper contacted John's family in Illinois, and his family said John had driven to the Rocky Mountains for a solo camping trip, and he was supposed to return early September, but they hadn't heard from him since August 20th. Wait, so what were the dates? He he told them he was going when? So, in late August, he took off, went for the Rocky Mountains. On September 10th, his vehicle was pulled over. In mm-hmm. Idaho. Okay. So there was no date. There's no departure date, except it was like late August. So he was expected to be gone for two to three weeks. Okay. His family had not heard from him since August 20th. Van was pulled over September 10th. Hmm. So about a 10-day span. Mm-hmm. So the question the investigator had to answer was, why was this man, Jeffrey, driving John's vehicle over 800 miles away from where he was supposed to be camping? Yeah. From there, they brought Jeffrey into the station, and he was completely lucid until they started asking him where John was. From there, he started to act confused and said he didn't know where John was. Then he said he was camping with John in Colorado, but again, didn't know where he was. Hmm. Detectives used information gathered from John's van and cell phone, including pictures on his cell phone, to find his last known location. A campground near Rollinsville, Colorado, about an hour west of Denver, was the last kind of identification on the phone. Uh-huh. From there, the detectives called Gilpin County Sheriff's Office in Colorado and explained what was going on. From there, both kind of offices in Idaho and Colorado were working together, and they used a GPS ping from John's cell phone on around August 28th to guide the team in Colorado to go search for where John Cumbie was last seen. Hmm. From there, they discovered his remains on September 13th with the help of a cadaver-sniffing dog. His body was found in a remote camping area under brush on a lightly used trail. Mm, God, I'm always so afraid when, like, hiking that, like, oh, I never want to find a body or see, like, a foot sticking out of the ground or, like, any of that shit. I was looking at this, and I was looking at another story about people, like, disappearing in the woods, and mm-hmm. there were some comments on Reddit about, like, I don't know, how you just get swallowed up by the wilderness. Yeah. Like, had they not, I'm kind of, like, jumping ahead, but had they not found his this man driving his vehicle, who knows yeah. what yeah. people would have thought happened to him. They could have thought he just walked out there and got lost and never found again, especially in America, out west, where there is just so much space. Yeah. Especially when you're alone. So when asked again about John's whereabouts, Jeffrey told the sheriff's department in Idaho that he would tell them where to find John's body if they declared him unfit to stand trial. Oh, gosh. Bargaining. But by then, the detectives had already found the body. Mm, Good. Thank God. 
What a dumbass. Again, dumb people. Yeah. Go cell phones. <laughs> Ada County Sheriff investigators in Idaho also found evidence that Jeffrey did internet searches for topics including how to plead insanity. Oh how my to God. act insane. <laughs> fake being Aww. insane. Wow. How people who fake insanity give themselves away mm. and 10 uses of the insanity defense. <laughs> so again, why are people using their dang cell phones? Yeah. When they're committing and planning crimes. It's insane. Like, I'm, again, I'm glad they're so dumb, so it's yeah. so easy to convict them. But, God, they're dumb. Yeah. So, Jeffrey stayed in the Ada County Jail for a few months before transferring to a jail in Colorado where he was charged with the murder. Mm. Jeffrey eventually pleaded guilty to second-degree murder, identity theft, and aggravated motor vehicle theft. He was sentenced to 44 years in prison. Mm. And how old was he? Oh, gosh. I don't think I mentioned it. I think he was, like, 24, 25. Oh, I was hoping that he would be like, oh, he was 60 years old, and that's a life sentence. Oh, yeah. But the crazy part, like I mentioned earlier, is the part that I thought was interesting with the story. It's, like, short and, like, right to the point. But Mm -hmm. imagine if they had never pulled over his van. Yeah. Then this man's John's family probably would have just thought, okay, he went out camping out west. He was supposed to be gone for a few weeks. He was alone. Like you said, gets lost in the vast wilderness yeah. because it's like People disappear out hiking west. all the time, yeah. Yeah, and he would have just been like some guy disappeared yeah. hiking, and then this jerk would still be out on the run doing whatever. I mean, he already had arson and theft charges too, so. Yeah. You know, and I, I wish that he would have got more time. I, I wish that any time you killed somebody, you should get a life sentence. You took somebody's life, you should lose your own. I know. Um, but certainly, if you already had other charges, too, it's like, that paints a picture of, like, the kind of person you are and the kind of person you will be, so... I know, an arson, like, yeah, setting fire to something is terrible. Yeah. I don't want to see what you're going to do in 44 years if you get out and you're still young enough to do anything. I don't know. Yeah, and I do wonder, they don't really give much detail, but I was curious, did he really go camping with John? Like, did they cross paths somewhere? Yeah. Was this guy hitchhiking because he was from Texas and somehow they crossed paths somewhere in Colorado? Mm. Yeah. Like, what's that story? He never really shared anything at all. Mm. He was too busy trying to think of how he could pretend that he was crazy. (laughs) How to plead insanity, yeah. That's wild. It makes me so mad, though, because so many of us just want to go hiking or camping, like, unmolested. And you got crazy people out there who see you as, like, an easy target. And you kind of are an easy target because, like you said, like, you can just disappear and no one would know where you were. So, yeah. No, people are crazy. Yeah. I'd kill to go on a nice long hike right now well now i'm like a little more terrified of camping yeah i was gonna say crazy like drifters who might try to murder you yeah no i mean i don't know if i'd go camping alone yeah but who knows who knows when they met each other it could have been a busy campground yeah um you know and i know one story that maybe someday i will bring up where it was like two young men who seemed like they had a lot in common met at this place where you know like hiking area and decided to go hiking together, or maybe they met like on the bus on the way there or something, decided to go hiking together, and then one kills the other. <laughs> it's like everybody in town just thought they were like two friends going on a hike, and, and you you never know what's in somebody else's head. You really can't and shouldn't trust anyone. <laughs> so Yeah, we talk about that often, but you really don't know what's in someone's head. No. There was this one person, I was just watching a Dateline episode from Friday, and it was about this guy... Oh, 
gosh, I can't remember his name right now. But he would bury these kill kill caches around the U.S. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. The guy from Alaska. Ugh. And his family thought, he, like, he killed some girl and then went on a family cruise. Yeah. And it's like, again, you don't know what's in someone's head. No. And he talked about this one family he killed in Vermont. And he, like, just, he drove to Michigan or Chicago and then drove and he had one of his little boxes in Vermont. He was like, oh, I was just going to find a couple in mm-hmm. a garage that was easy to get into. And I'm like, that's Ugh. that's Ugh. all Ugh. that's going through your, like, what sick people. Yeah. You and I will never understand. <laughs> but no, nope. other people out there will, which is scary. So, yeah, that was my story. Short and sweet. Yeah. Well, send us any hiking or camping stories if you have any that are just a little creepy. And um, you can send those to early departures podcast at gmail.com or get us on instagram at early departures podcast and we'll be back next week with more stories as always and um until then be safe and depart on time it should be so low that i'm not i wasn't talking so it should be Fine, as the dogs are departing. <laughs>